minority people, people who feel excluded, are feeling all those little things that you don't see. A microaggression can also be if you address a joke or you address a situation and somebody makes the situation smaller. I'm just so furious from the inside, but I cannot react because if I react, I might be reacting maybe angry or sad. And that's also put on display. So I hold it in. I say nothing. And in the meantime, I am killing myself. Breakdown Wake Up is about discovering the groundbreaking wisdom within our most challenging life stories. I'm Meg Mateer, a psychology nerd turned business consultant and entrepreneur. Join me to hear from leaders about when things in their lives were breaking down and to listen for the wisdom waking up. Along the way, we'll explore fresh perspectives like how distress is a driver of success, not a barrier to it how our personal and professional lives are inherently connected, and how our individual experiences can help solve broader societal challenges. Hey, everyone. So we've reached a point in the podcast where we could really use your help. If you've been listening into Breakdown Wake Up and enjoying the themes and the lessons that you're getting through people's stories, please leave us a review on iTunes. That would be so helpful and really help grow the reach of these stories. I have some other exciting news. So the second edition of the Breakdown Wake Up group program is going to be launching in January. And so we're opening the doors for people to apply for that program. Again, that's specifically designed to help you understand the meaning and wisdom within your distress and then be able to use it as fuel to start new projects, new businesses, social activism. It's really incredible. And it's not just for people who are going through periods of distress in this moment. It's really for people who want to understand their system of distress so that at any point when they go into a period of distress that they can get that wisdom and use it. So if this sounds interesting for you and you'd like to find out more information about the program, you can go to our website and click on programs or visit www.breakdownwakeup/programs. I'll put that also in the show notes. In this interview, I speak with Vivian Aqua, and Vivian shares a really important story with me about living a very successful professional career until the point where she got pregnant. And not only the experience of her own challenging pregnancy and her experience with postpartum depression, but what that depression was signaling about a very challenging work environment that wasn't accepting her in this phase of her life that In fact, she experienced pregnancy discrimination. And although this 
theme runs through the conversation. There's so much to our discussion that goes beyond just the topic of pregnancy in the workplace. Vivian has described that she's also been one of the only women of color in many of the workplaces that she's been in. And she describes also how this intersection of being pregnant and a black woman in the professional space, she experienced all sorts of different microaggressions. As you go into this interview, pay attention to a few things. First, this conversation is so much about how the personal is professional and the importance of merging these two worlds much more than they they would be before. I think one of the reasons why workplaces are so challenged and confronted by this concept of women going into this phase of pregnancy is that they don't see how much work life is intrinsically connected with our personal lives. I think the other thing to keep in mind as you listen to this conversation is to think back on your your time maybe as a teenager and think about those social dynamics that you experienced in school. Maybe you remember feeling left out or teased or that there were jokes going on behind your back. I think many of us in our teenage lives experience that sort of dynamic. But what I hear in Vivian's story is also that this goes on in the workplace and it has a similar effect. You know, we are adults. We are we are much smarter. We'd like to think we are much smarter than we are when we were teenagers, but a lot of these social dynamics are still going on in organizations. And so to feel like the butt of those jokes or to feel like the victim of those dynamics of a sort of gossipy bullying dynamic is is really challenging. It's really challenging and it's also really important to recognize this as an issue in the workplace. I think this feeds into this other theme that I think many of us can relate to, which is having some sort of gut feeling about the situation, having a sense that something is off, that, for example, you do feel excluded or you do feel devalued, but you can't necessarily point a direct finger to something that was explicitly said or something that could be considered an official instance of discrimination. And trying to raise your voice and clarify to people what you're actually feeling in that moment, that you are picking up on something. But then to have the reaction of the organization or the leaders or the people involved saying, it's just a joke, it's just this, is Again, a subtle denial of your own experience. But beyond that, this denial as it builds up, it's an external denial of your own feelings. And I think what happens in this dynamic is that there's also this internal filter that starts creeping in that says, whatever you're feeling about this situation is not accepted to be brought into conversation. So you start denying your own internal signals. And that's a really challenging position to be in. So keep those in mind as you listen to this conversation.
So Vivian, it's so great to have you on the Breakdown Wake Up podcast. I'm also excited that you're you're inviting me for this uh, for this interview, or let's say this conversation. It's not an interview; it's a conversation that we're about to have. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you are a workplace wellness and diversity, equity, and inclusion advocate, a public speaker, podcast host, and online show producer of Let's Humanize the Workplace. Your work focuses on helping managers and organizations keep their people healthy, safe, and engaged. You take a holistic approach to wellness that covers topics like physical, emotional, career, social, financial, and environmental wellness. You have also been the director of the Know Better, Do Better Foundation focused on fighting obesity. Prior to this, you spent about six years working as an IT consultant and about eight years working in finance. Welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Such a rich experience. I know, I know. I've done a lot. I've definitely done a lot, but it's all, you know, part of my growth and I am embracing every journey of it. Well, I wanted to start where we sort of have something in common. We both started our career in the finance space and are now sort of in our respective ways trying to, like you said, humanize the workplace. But I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your experience working in the financial space and what brought you there in the first place. Well, when I started... um my university, no, I started my college. I had a decision to make. It was either IT or it was either business economics. And I regret that I didn't choose for IT because especially now that IT is booming. But at the time, my my grades were very good. And also, you know, to reassure my parents, it was otherwise becoming a doctor or a nurse, or an advocate, or something in finance. So I chose something in finance. And another thing that added towards that is my father did not believe in women in IT, which I proved him wrong. But at the time, it was a a male, you know, it still is, unfortunately, a male-dominated area. But there are so many women rocking IT right now. So, um yeah, I'm always, you know, I always have that ITism in me where I use that to elevate my brand or help others with that as well. Okay, great. Yeah. So because you did end up transitioning from finance into the IT space. Yes, true, true. So I'm really curious to hear a little bit more about your your breakdown wake up story that you want to share on this podcast. And I thought it would be really powerful to start. um, You've shared with me earlier a little bit about experiencing, um, yeah, a tough period in your personal life and how that also impacted things in the workplace for you. Yeah. So um, I left the workplace because of the fact that I face pregnancy discrimination and uh, I'm going to share an example. And that is when I was about five weeks pregnant, I did not tell my friends. I did not tell my family members. I told my managers. And at the time I was working for a small IT company for about 40 people, 40 employees, and they have five managers 
and mainly men. And I chose to disclose my pregnancy with them because of the fact that I feared if I didn't, I would be harassed or I would face other, you know, other situations which would make the uh, the atmosphere worse. One reaction that I got is, did you plan this? And in my mind, I was thinking about, should I disclose when and what time and on what date I'm having sex? Because that question in itself, it's totally inappropriate. One didn't share his emotion, did not say anything. And a few were, two of them congratulated me, but I knew that I was being devalued as a woman, as a person, because of the fact that I'm pregnant. For me, it was important to um, to really take care of my, my, my child because becoming pregnant, it wasn't an easy task. And um, there are so many women also facing challenges becoming a mom. I ended up uh, calling in sick because it was too much for me. And also the, the environment, the workplace was very toxic and my blood pressure went high. After he was born, I ended up in a uh, postnatal depression. And it had to do with the fact that I was worried about my future. Not that I was worried about me becoming a mom, but I was worried about returning back to the workplace as a mom, knowing what they did before. And one day, I think Orlando was at the time, he was about three months or four months old. I looked into his eyes and I cried. And um, out of out of happiness, but also out of sadness. And then it clicked me, it hit me. I got a vision, a dream, whatever it is that you want to call it. But I really saw myself being miserable, being unhappy, and him seeing that part of me while he is worried about my safety and well-being. And the last thing that I want to do is create that environment. So I knew I had to do something about that. And that's when I left that toxic environment because um, everything is better than the environment that I was in. Can you describe a little bit more about the toxic environment that you sensed once you started having this fear? My performance wasn't good enough. That was the critique that I was getting. I was compared with all, you know, my other male colleagues all the time. And really these uh, microaggressions, I did not understand that. And it's also a way I felt like I was giving them too much power over me because I was devaluing my own worth. I was devaluing myself. I was uh, in a lot of pain, but becoming the mom is the best thing that happened to me. And I call, I call Orlando, my life coach. And there are so many occasions where he said something or just by looking at him, it's like he's upholding a mirror and making me see the truth in me, my worthiness, my happiness, and so much more. It's it's really incredible also to think about this parallel that you're experiencing first is like this really powerful, profound life event 
of bearing a child and then at the same time feeling really, like you said, devalued. And I think one of the points that you make that's really interesting is it's also so easy, I think, for us to take on the judgments or those microaggressions or the devaluation that that our environment might put on. It's it's understandable that you started to think like, am I worthy or can I contribute at this same level? And I'm really curious to understand a little bit more about what was the transition? So you were working at this company before you got pregnant. And what was that difference that you felt in that environment as a result of being with child? Before I was pregnant, I was, uh, you know, let's say the top 10 employee. Um, I was respected. Um, I wasn't questioned. My, my, my skills weren't questioned. And then during the time that I became pregnant, that's when the poking started. The poking as in, you know, my pregnancy wasn't an easy one. So I sometimes called in sick. And I received comments or questions. I really felt they they were unhappy with me. And um, it, it started from the moment that I shared with them that I was pregnant. That's when I started having these, you know, these, these comments. And also know that I have written a blog before about my experience of microaggression. If one person does this and does it constantly and know that I am a black woman, I face a lot of microaggressions from time to time, it builds up and it feels like you're being attacked by a killer bee, not one, but a whole tribe. That is how I feel microaggression. And it's the wrong word because microaggression have a macro impact. Describe for me and for the audience, like for you, what is a microaggression? A microaggression can be somebody's making a joke, an inappropriate joke, and uh, everybody's laughing, but from the inside, you are angry, you're crying, you're sad because you're being devalued, you're being dehumanized in front of people. A microaggression can also be if you address a joke or you address a situation and somebody makes the situation smaller. So for instance, I reported the situation where something inappropriate happened and it was just like, no, but it's a joke. It's okay. He didn't mean it that way. And every time that somebody does that, you're not honoring my feelings. You're not honoring somebody else's feeling as in I am not allowed to feel that way. Yeah, it's a, those are really good examples and I think this is also this this idea of like you're recognizing that there's something different going on in the workplace and you can feel it and sense it because as human beings we pick up on these subtle signals. We don't need the blatant insult or devaluation. And so when you tried to raise that point and actually express your own distress around this situation, I, I totally get this whole idea of sort of downplaying it actually increases that feeling of pain, of isolation, of devaluation. 
Yeah, there is also the iceberg layer, right? So there is a, um, I have to say it, there is a anti-racism uh, iceberg where the top of the iceberg is the fact that there are so many, you know, items that are, uh, that everybody realizes that it's inappropriate to say something like that or to connect something like that. But there's so much more underwater that you don't see. But people, minority people, people who feel excluded are feeling all those little things that you don't see on the water. And do you have an example of that so that the listeners can can get a sense of what that could be to to empathize, to be in your situation? The example that I have is I've most of the time I've always been the only black person or most of the time I've only been the only black woman. And when somebody makes a comment about my hair, it depends on the way they ask. But if they ask it in a particular way and also if they ask it in front of a whole crowd, being put on display in front of a whole group, that's when you get my, that's when you touch my bottles, buttons. And that's where I'm, I'm just so furious from the inside, but I cannot react because if I react, I might be reacting maybe angry or sad. And that's also put on display. So I hold it in. I say nothing. And in the meantime, I am killing myself from the inside. That's when my stress level builds up. And if you put that, you know, on top of, all the little things that are happening, again, it's like you're poking the bear on a daily basis. And on one day, the bear gets really angry and does something. And did you have a day like that where you felt where you got really angry? Yes, I did have that. Not angry, but really sad. Uh, really sad. And I am a person that I, when I'm quiet, really quiet, as in not sociable, that's when you have to be afraid or scared or concerned because I'm very outgoing. I'm talkative. And if I don't say something for a while and it feels like cold, you know, that energy, that's when you have to worry. So I did have those occasions. I was never angry, more sad or more withdrawn. And I knew that if I would stay longer in that situation or if that situation wasn't addressed from the inside, I left because it's the only person I was mostly the only person who was affected by this and who's going to stand up for me. And even so, if they did that, the organization was too big to do something about it. Okay. Yeah. You didn't feel like there was possibility for systemic change at that point. Well, there was, but depending on who you know, who felt challenged to to do something about it. Because if you have to support 120 people or the only person that is complaining, I can definitely name maybe two companies from out of the 40 companies that I've been in that really know how to include people. And what did those companies do? What did they do that that could be a good example for other companies? They listened and learned to the people. That's it. So like in the same instance, if you raised something that you were concerned about or felt 
a microaggression or something that they would you felt really that they were listening they were listening but also know that the condition for creating such an environment to open up is it was safe for me to address it there was trust to address it okay that you knew that like if you spoke up and you, s- you shared your feelings that someone was not only just listening but wanting to take action and implement that in different measures or you know sort of fix the situation yeah that's super important yeah and i hear you regarding again like the complexity of these what's happening below the waterline because this is where we really do need to trust the employees, the people that are trying to sound the alarm bells and say, hey, listen, I'm sensing this or I get a sense that there's unsafety. Maybe it's it's hard to even communicate or deliver because it's not like something that's so explicit, but you pick up on it and you try and convey that. And if there isn't that sense of real trust or investment in what you're saying, then that unsafety is actually increased rather than decreased. And the disengagement is booming. And not only realizing that the person who addresses it is disengaged, but also the people surrounding that person can feel that disengagement. And it can be like energy can be, um, how do you say, you can, somebody can you know be affected by your energy. It can be positive or it can be negative. And it, it, it reminds me also of um, a post that I saw a while ago about a person addressing a situation which could have been solved with a small investment, but they said they had no budget. Again, the person addressed it you know, towards a director. Again, they said they had no budget. That person left and left with a complaint, left with a lawsuit. Then the company is saying, we are going to sue you and spend money on an advocate and spend so much money on legal costs. Whilst they could have done, they could have prevented it if they listened and learned and invested in that Mm. person. Wow. Yeah, that's huge. I want to switch also maybe to learn, like, understand a little bit more about what was happening in your postpartum depression. Can you help me understand what you were feeling at that point and then also what brought you out of that experience? So postpartum depression can be, for every woman, it can be uh, different. What I knew, uh, what I know from that time is I really felt unworthy of myself as a mom, Um, I'm worthy as a person and as a partner, and I was in my own bubble. I did, you know, I did feed my son and I had, you know, interactions with him, but my circle was very small because it was like sleeping, eating, feeding, and from time to time, uh, from time to time, I did have a conversation with friends, but my bubble was very, very small. And um, the tip that I want to, or something that I want, I'm sharing with, you know, moms to be, or those who are, who know, 
any uh, pregnant ladies is call them, reach out towards them, let them know that you're available. Even when they say no, maybe call them on a weekly or bi-weekly basis just to, to let them know that you're available. Because just being outside of that bubble really helped me. So I learned how to express how I felt and that I was postnatal. I was suffering from a postnatal depression. Uh, one thing that I did was remove myself from the workplace, from that toxic workplace. So that's step one. Step number two is admitting and sharing that I had a postnatal depression. And also another step is I recognized that my mom, she didn't talk about this. And it's also not common to talk about this in our culture. But I spoke with her that I remember when she was pregnant with my sister, we have an age difference of 14 years old. So I've been her second mom. I remember that she wasn't feeling, you know, herself. And I remember that I, I saw these little things adding up as you were depressed as well. And she admitted it, that she wasn't herself. And I also encourage, you know, mothers, uh, if you're becoming a grandmother, share your pregnancy story. I know it's been a while and that's why I'm, I'm happy that we are in an age where you can write things down or can put it, you know, digitally or put it in a Google Doc somewhere. But we need to hear those experiences from our parents so that we can learn from that and we can prevent so many other things. And I stopped breastfeeding after five months because that's hormones, the work environment, uh, not having lack, not having a good sleep quality. All these things build up towards feeling not resilient enough. And like I said, every woman who is uh, facing with or is challenged with a postnatal depression has a different you know, ingredients or combination that builds towards the postnatal depression. So my story is not, you know, some other, somebody else's story, but it helps to be open about it and to share that. Yeah, it's a great point that you make as well, that this, uh, there's many different factors. So not only is everyone's experience unique, but there were all sorts of different factors that were contributing to that overall feeling for you. Um, so once you started also paying attention to, okay, so there's a signal that this work environment is really not working for me. There's a sense that I feel completely isolated in this really small bubble and I don't have a network of people to support me in this completely new phase of life that I think for, for any of us that would experience such a shift in, in our identity and who we are and, and what our role is in taking care of new life, it's such a big transition. And then to feel isolated in that as well is, is such a big factor. And also interesting that you, you mentioned these other like physical sort of wellness aspects, which is about getting good sleep and like the hormonal piece as well. It's really, yeah, it shows a really holistic picture to what really contributed to that experience and what helped to move you through that. And it's really great that you're sharing this experience with people because I think 
what's what's counterintuitive about postnatal depression is that there's all sorts of expectation of, you know, your role as a caretaker that like now you have to be responsible and giving to this other life and to feel so down about yourself or to feel so low about your own contribution. It's such, it's like a double whammy, right? Mm -hmm. It's a paradox in itself. But when I realized that, you know, I just gave birth to a beautiful boy who, you know, who is so amazing that when it clicked, I started eating better. I started, you know, exercising, doing nice things, walking outside. I started taking take better care of myself and also interact with more women, more like-minded mothers. Because so many mothers are ashamed with sharing their story or just sharing that they are in this bubble. So I felt like I lost myself and I found myself back. So so tell me more also about, so you decided to shift out of this toxic work environment? And then what was your next step after you decided that this was not going to be your career future, this environment? Well, my next step was um, I tried working at uh, a government uh, organization for a year. It didn't work out. And then in the in between, I worked on my health and a lot of people noticed that and a lot of people began to ask questions about that. And that's when I knew I can make a difference in the workplace as a workplace wellness advocate. I didn't want to become, you know, an advisor or a coach, even though sometimes people see me like that. I just wanted to um, have an impact on people and also have a title that describes that impact. And that's when I started becoming a workplace wellness advocate. So I invested in my, uh, invested in doing courses, doing studies. And here in the Netherlands, the focus, when it comes to well-being, the focus is mainly physical and sometimes a little bit mental, but mainly physical when it comes to work workplaces. And I wanted to make a difference you take this holistic approach to wellness. What are these ingredients that you think go beyond the physical space into creating like real holistic wellness in the workplace? We are two different people. You have uh, different needs, different aspects. We are both in line when it comes to humanizing the workplace, but your what you need to become resilient is definitely different than what I need to become resilient. So when you provide that option or the, the 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 opportunity for people to choose to work on their financial well-being or to work on their mental well-being or to work on their career, that's when you empower people. Because not only are you empowering them to work on their resilience regarding uh, career well-being, for instance, but it also has a positive effect on their physical health and their mental health and financial health. So instead of creating that domino effect where all the stones fall down, one stone is uplifting the other stone and it's uplifting the other stone and it's uplifting the other stone. 
Yeah, it's great. It's it, it makes a lot of sense. And it's really looking at the self as a system so that these elements actually, they're intrinsically already connected. So we sort of silo them for the purposes of understanding the different elements, but they are so intrinsically connected. So it's really great that you're taking that approach to show also the uniqueness of each person and the interactive nature of how one one element of change in your life towards a positive, more aligned version can create that momentum that shifts a lot of other areas as well. In the workplace, we some, sometimes, you know, look at people as a mass, as part of the tribe and being all the same and forget that we all have individual needs. We are different. And that's that's when you bring power towards companies, when you amplify their differences. And I can see also this sounds like this is the, a connector or a significant connecting piece from wellness to this diversity, equity, and inclusion, that they are, are also very intrinsically connected. Can you tell me more about like your perspective on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace? I will say that when people don't feel included in the workplace, it does something to their mental well-being, but it can also affect their career, right? The fact that somebody else is being promoted or that men are mainly promoted for a position uh, without women even realizing that, but realizing that afterwards, it has an impact on their well-being. Yeah, it's a great point. And I think also what's happening, I I think back to what you're saying about what's happening below the waterline. So we may not even as employees, as unique employees or or managers and companies, we may not even be aware, consciously aware of these things that are happening below the waterline. And so the buildup of those things can create situations that result in high turnover, that result in employee disengagement. Absenteeism as well. And also, you know, people sharing on social media that they are unhappy or really canceling the company because of the, the events that are happening or the things they are addressing or not addressing. Because I also wanted to make a statement. I love using animals and we have too many ostriches who are keeping their head in the sand. And I want people to stand tall as Timo, you know, Timo from uh, The Lion King. I, I don't know what he, what, what kind of animal he is, but he was really standing tall and really curious about the safety of, uh, of Simba. It's my child's fault. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, I've been though. watching so many yeah. cartoons lately. <laughs> That's so great. No, but I think these metaphors that can be really powerful in helping us anchor and remember, um, yeah, the important themes. And I agree. I think, I guess I'm, I'm curious what you think about as we try and help encourage people to become more conscious of some of these things that are going on under the waterline, even for people that are experiencing, for example, a toxic work environment, but may not even be aware that that's the case. They can just feel the subtle feelings. What what can we do to try and bring this 
into a, a higher level of consciousness and actually into conversation rather than into just physical tension or discouragement or sort of our isolated feelings. There's a lot that we can do. And if I open that, uh, it feels like opening Pandora's box, but um, on team level. So what I encourage managers to do is really to have uh, open and honest conversation saying that you don't know where to start or you don't know where to begin, but I want to create an environment where you feel open enough or you feel safe enough to address that you don't feel included or to address that it's not diverse enough or to address whatever it is and really work on creating that psychological safety, the trust, because without that, you can do what you can have your wish list of really, you know, becoming more, uh, more of an advocate in the workplace. But without trust, people will not open up, and you need them. You need you need them to be honest. And another way to really find out what's happening is look at the leakage. Look at the people who are leaving. They don't have anything to be afraid of anymore and ask them within three months, what is the real reason why they left? Yeah, it's very, it's very practical and very grounded way of engaging people because instead of coming up with, you know, I'm thinking like in the business world, everyone loves their strategies and like, you know, the five point questionnaire or checklist or something. And you're bringing it into this really practical space, which is just like, instead of waiting for people to come with their own feelings that again, may not even be fully developed, they're just sensing things under the waterline that you initiate in a, in a position of power in that organization, you initiate the conversation and say, listen, I'm open to hearing whatever feelings you have, whether they are sort of fully baked or whether it's just a sense that you have. It may not be something that you can point exactly to a situation, but I want to understand how you're feeling. I, I think that's really, really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And know that not only managers are Managers not are not the only one who are responsible for H, for DEI and also HR is not the only department who is responsible for DEI. Everybody is responsible for uh, raising awareness regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion. I know that I was for, pointing my fingers at the manager, but I'm also asking you to step up and activate your self-leadership as well when it comes to this topic. What do you mean by that? I'm saying that if you have an interest of um, becoming or starting an employee resource group, start it. That employees can come together without the initiation of management and be supportive. We don't always have to wait for the policy to be formed. Uh, we don't always have to wait for the leader to talk or the leader to open up. I want everybody to activate their self-leadership and initiate small steps so that you can find and create your tribe to create that change within the company. 
it's grassroots network building within either within an organization or between organizations or outside of organizations. And I think this is really also the future of how we are going to start supporting each other more holistically is not waiting for those, like you said, the policies or the formal groups that have been constructed. It's more about co-creation and network building in that sense. Definitely. I mean, I am happy that companies are providing, you know, unconscious bias training or anti anti racism training or whatever DEI training they are providing, but know that just providing a one time, one off training, it will not do the work. You need to really walk that marathon or run that marathon or whatever. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's I don't know if it's just me, but like, I feel like if we only think about this in terms of trainings, that it starts to create this mindset of, again, like going into this structured way of interacting. Like, I need to have this checklist of unconscious bias in my mind so that I can be a perfect person that's inclusive and and open to diversity versus sort of again this introduction of the idea that you're bringing into the into the conversation which is be open just you know like i could say something like well tell me how you're feeling because i i don't know what your experience is like from your side of the table so um, I think that that's really important because I think especially in organizations, we can get into that checklist mindset of like, what are the steps and am I doing the right thing? Have I followed the protocol? But this is much more on a human connection, human to human level of understanding, empathizing, stepping outside of our own experience and into the experience of someone else. Yeah. And you're also creating a space where you can fall. I mean, even as a DEI advocate, I make my mistakes. I have, you know, my biases. Yes, I do have my biases. Yeah, we all do. We all do. (laughs) But it's about upholding a mirror and, and see that the moment that you recognize that bias, what do you do? Do you stand up? after you fall or do you lay down and say, I'm done? The game-changing conversation is when we start to bring these things again to the surface, even those feelings of, well, I am actually feeling some inner discrimination going on in my system. And where is this coming from? Because I think, again, we've, we've sort of subconsciously adopted societal narratives that we may have we may not even understand why we are carrying them so the more that we start to consciously engage with that material bring it into conversation rather than just gut feeling then we can shift things i totally agree and also know that you're dealing with a generation that is going to speak up more more often than what you see now and also know that other stakeholders are asking about your DEI efforts and you need to report them. I know that reporting them is also forcing, you know, companies to uh, check, use their checklist. <laughs> yeah. But it's also a way of becoming transparent and creating that openness and really having that 
uh, really showcasing that you're making the effort, you're doing the work. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's really good points and very practical, I think, help for, for people in the workplace to understand this. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your experience with me, Vivian. I really appreciate it. It was a fun conversation. Do you have anything else that you want to share with me or the audience? I am challenging the audience to level up their diversity, equity, and inclusion level. If you are in an environment where you don't know other people from other from from being diverse from you, reach out. Have a conversation with them. They don't bite. At least I cannot make the guarantee that they don't bite, but most of them don't bite. They are open <laughs> to have that conversation with you and create that safety where you are curious. You want to have a conversation with them. You're curious, but also respect their wishes and their boundaries if they are not ready to open up or if they don't want to open up. Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) Time flew. I still really can't get over how many interesting themes have come up in this conversation. I'm so happy that Vivian really shared honestly all of this complexity that was going on in her situation. And I think many people who experience a time being on the margins can really see very clearly because they become very sensitive to what is going on in social dynamics in order to protect themselves. They can see very clearly what is going wrong in those structural systems. It makes it even more pertinent for us to listen to those opinions, to those distress signals of people that are on the margins or people who have experienced being marginalized. I think one of the important themes that came up in this conversation is about how diversity, equity, and inclusion and well-being are intrinsically connected. They can't be separated. We can't have workplaces that are supporting well-being that also perpetuate a feeling of needing to fit into a box or not appreciating the diverse perspectives and backgrounds that people are coming from. And similarly, we can't have real diversity, equity, and inclusion without focusing on well-being in the workplace And like Vivian said, having psychological safety, not only within our teams, but within the structures that allow us to sound the alarm within the organization when things are not going right. Those ombudsman programs or those informal networks that are trying to engage people to better understand why they might be feeling off, those need to be really open. I think this connects really well to another theme, which is this idea that oftentimes our distress is not the effect of one cause of something. It's the buildup of a number of different factors. For Vivian, for example, her postpartum depression was a buildup of things like the lack of sleep, a hormone change, a toxic work environment, 
feeling like alone and being in her own space without a lot of social support. There's so many factors that were going into that experience. And so when we think about distress, we really need to think about those underlying factors and think about it in a more complex, holistic way, where if someone is feeling distress at work, that we ask them not just about how they're feeling, but what else is going on in the workplace, in their lives. It's not just about creating habits. It's about understanding the meaning behind those distress signals. So I think workplaces are now recognizing the importance of bringing well-being practices into the workplace, but it's not just about those practices. It's also about building the support structures and the communities within the workplace that can really understand what deeper meaning and wisdom is being sort of stirred up in this distress and then be able to take action to change those systems in order to better support people. Because again, distress is often a a reaction to something that is off in the environment. So if we simply ignore that and put the onus on the person who's in distress, we are continuing to perpetuate a system that does not work for people. I think the final theme that I want to highlight here is about how challenging it can be to be immersed in an environment where you're being fed critical negative things and getting negative energy and not be able to take that on personally and take it as something that has to do with you. I think so many of us, when we experience some sort of negativity that is not just a one-time thing but perpetuates itself in our environment, it's so easy to take that on and digest it and sort of internalize that narrative and then ask, start doubting ourselves and asking ourselves, are we good enough? So it's understandable, again, that this, this internalization of a narrative that's perpetuated in our environment is somewhat natural. And so it also puts a demand and a question out towards organizations and leaders about the importance of really changing culture of the organization and addressing these interpersonal dynamics because otherwise it really does get internalized by each person and then oftentimes perpetuated. So we need to look, like Vivian said, below that surface, below the water level to see what those deeper cultural assumptions, beliefs, ideas are getting projected out into that workplace and then be able to unpack them and work with them and shift them on a conscious level rather than unconsciously digesting them and perpetuating them in the system. Thank you guys so much again for listening. These conversations are so important and the stories are important in themselves, but they go beyond the individual. They bring up themes that are so applicable to many of us that many of us are not talking about. And they pose ideas for shifting our systems, our relationships, our way of being with ourselves that 
capture the complexity of the human experience and don't simply give some sort of protocol of what we should do or could do. I would love to hear your thoughts and reactions and what resonates for you. So please feel free to reach out, visit the website, sign up for our newsletter, start to get more involved in this project because we need more people who want to be a part of Breakdown Wake Up. If you like what you just heard, please check out our website at www.breakdownwakeup.com. If you subscribe to our mailing list, you'll get weekly updates about episodes and special events. We also have a growing community of people who are getting excited about this concept and sharing their own thoughts and reactions. Finally, if you're trying to discover the underlying wisdom within your own breakdown and need some help, we've designed special programs to help do just that. Thanks again for listening. And remember, when things are breaking down, important wisdom is waking up.